everybody and welcome back to another episode of Reimagining Soviet Georgia. My name is Brian Gigantino. How the Soviet Union came to an end in 1991 after its nearly 70-year existence is a process and event still mired in controversy and debate. Historians, politicians, citizens of the post-Soviet world and beyond understand this epochal event in drastically different ways. Was it the result of internal contradictions of the Soviet system? Did pressure from the capitalist world force the USSR into an arms race that led to economic ruin? Was the Soviet Union consciously dismembered by elites from national republics? Did Gorbachev undermine his own political goals? Or was the rise of Boris Yeltsin to blame for the failures of perestroika and glasnost? Did the West, and principally the United States, actively push the USSR towards collapse or earnestly try to save it at the last moment, or both? And what does all of this mean for post-Soviet Georgia? Former first secretary of the Georgian Communist Party, Edward Shevardnadze, was at the center of it all as the final foreign minister of the USSR, only to return to Georgia and become the president of the country in 1995. His unique role in the process of the USSR's collapse, along with the close connections in the West he made along the way, directly influenced the trajectory of nation-building in post-Soviet Georgia. On today's episode, myself, Sopo Japaridze, and Beka Natsvishvili discuss all of this and more with historian Vladislav Zubok, author of the new book, Collapse, The End of the Soviet Union. Vladislav Zubak, thank you for coming on to Reimagining Soviet Georgia. Um, it, why don't you introduce yourself? Who are you and what do you do? I'm a historian. I was born in Moscow in 1958. Uh, Khrushchev was still in, in power, believe it or not. Uh, then after the collapse of the Soviet Union, I uh, was invited to uh, do historical research in the United States, which I did. Uh, until uh, 2012, and then I uh, got an offer from the London School of Economics, where I teach uh, ever since. I write books, mostly on the Cold War, the Russian intellectuals, <clears throat> Russian-Soviet intellectuals, and uh, uh, write articles on post-Soviet developments in international affairs. Vladislav, you wrote this uh, great new book called Collapse, 
um, about the end of the Soviet Union. So just for our audience, you know, what is your book about? Could you just give us a little description? What it, What is the basic idea of your book, Collapse? Well, the title describes it all. <clears throat> you know, I could, could have called it... Uh demolition i could have called it uh implosion i could have called it many other ways i chose the word collapse uh because my idea was <clears throat> listen uh you know the soviet union m must have been an empire and ruled for moscow multi-national multi-ethnic uh and very complex uh state with 15 republics many autonomies as you know people still remember <clears throat> but uh, you know, you can say that this sort of uh, multi-level um, uh, empire, let's call it empire, uh, was doomed uh, under conditions of liberalization, democracy, market, whatever. But the way it uh, disappeared uh, was not inevitable. Uh, it, that was pretty unique. And you cannot find a case in world history when in peacetime, a huge country with a four million strong army with a very potent KGB and other police force, right, police and all that, uh, went up in smoke and uh, peacefully, uh, relatively, relatively peacefully, not certainly not in South uh, Caucasus, um, <clears throat> uh, became a history. So that uh, was my idea to write about the uniqueness of this process. And um, what uh, pushed me to write this book is that I teach my students and uh, use, of course, everything that was written before. And when I wrote myself what was written before about the Soviet collapse, I was not satisfied at all. I just thought <clears throat> maybe I should try myself to explain to the younger readers and to my students and to myself, why and how it was possible that such a huge country, very authoritarian, uh, began to change so rapidly under Gorbachev, began to liberalize, and then immediately disappeared. What was it inevitable? What what or or, or not? In in the in the course of my research, I sort of kept arguing back and forth, back and forth, and the pressure of the existing literature, the dominant discourse, I should say on me as as an uh, researcher as an author was enormous because everyone told me including my friends you know what are you doing why are you doing this and it's it's such a, a decided story everything is clear it was an evil empire and i was just pushed from a from abroad reagan told it to disappear right you know uh, all the nationalities wanted freedom intelligence they wanted freedom and all what are you talking about it's a very um, overdetermined <clears throat> process. So when I uh, began to work uh, with the material, however, the material told me um, many stories, but very different stories uh, from this kind of deterministic, doomed uh, empire. It told me first, you know, the Gorbachev tried to change it very uh, radically, uh, unsuccessfully, but very radically. So by 1990, we're not talking about the evil empire anymore. Even Reagan said it, right? Um, it was sort of, you know, uh, a belated but very genuine attempt to create a, <clears throat> a federation of uh, um, uh, voluntarily uh, bounded, uh, you know, republics, nationalities, ethnic groups, bounded by what, you may ask. Yes, 
And I kept asking myself, what could have bound them together? What could have kept them together? Well, uh, economy to begin with, because everything was really, really interdependent. Um, and uh, sort of um, uniqueness of history, I'm not going into this too much, you know, so that I wouldn't sound like uh, Vladimir Putin here, but uniqueness in a sense that, you know, it's uh, incredible in their locking ties and relationship. I'm not denying uh, hatreds as well, animosities, tensions. They were always there. But we should not discount the fact that those, you know, uh, countries, as one historian and my friend told me, you know, existed in a sort of a communal apartment, communalka. And, you know, communalka is not the best way to coexist, but sort of people may quarrel in communalka and fight and uh, destroy each other's life and, you know, whatever comfort they have, or they may develop a community. So I guess Gorbachev, naively or so, uh, began to uh, hope that uh, that community, instead of a former communalka, might be better for uh, for most of people, and uh, gradually it would develop in a sort of you know a normal um, voluntary confederation. Uh, it didn't work out this way, but I found a lot of evidence how it was actually. Um, you know, the Soviet Union was a tenacious subject. It refused to go away. And not simply because it was maintained by force, not only because there were all these uh, ugly generals and KGB uh, keeping, uh, keeping it together. There were a lot of stuff uh, that kept it together. Uh, so uh, to my surprise, I found even into the last months of 1991, after the August uh, coup in Moscow, which destroyed, uh, for, you know, the KGB for all purposes and the arm, the 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 demoralized the army. Even after that, there was a there was you know most of people sort of lived on as if the Soviet Union might sort of continue and roll on and on and on. So it it required a lot of uh, political will efforts. Uh, and, uh, you know, some external internal coalitions to tear it apart, literally tear it apart. Sometimes I felt like, you know, politicians tried to uh, to to tear it apart, uh, while sometimes people, um, not always, I'm not talking about Georgia, I'm not talking about Azerbaijan from some point on, uh, the Baltics certainly wanted to go, uh, but most of the other people just wanted to continue their life and keep the country. It's really interesting you mentioned community because you have a quote from Andropov, which is saying about the Eastern Bloc, this is not a community, this is vulgar, vulgar robbery. <laughs> <laughs> um, but this is, this also, is how economy was important. Yeah, sorry, continue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, and so, um, which is interesting because this is where, you know, nationalism is a funny thing, the way these different nationalities understand now Soviet Union is like Russian nationalists look at it this way. It's like this is these small nations were, were plundering the Soviet Union. Right. Um, while Georgian nationalists will say that Georgian, Georgia was giving way more than it was receiving. Of course, the facts mm -hmm. are not on this side. Mm -hmm. um, but this is an interesting how a lot of well, I think also like you, I don't, I, I haven't read the whole book. I read parts of it and actually we're going to have a study group over it. 
Um, but it's uh, interesting you start with undergrowth. You start with 1983 um, as your sort of build up to the collapse and maybe you can start you can discuss um what happened in 1983 where does all this like this uh, i think also like fatalism comes from there's some you know huge problems and we have to start fixing them right away maybe oh, don't, don't. Yeah. because because um i <laughs> because uh we started already with a similar question uh just to deepen this question. Um, what do you mean? Uh, was the Soviet Union empire in classical understanding, like, you know, empire with the colonies and so on, because it is uh, related with the nationalism and national question generally? No, well, I don't think the Soviet Union was a typical empire with colonies. Um, of course, uh, many intellectuals and nationalists uh, uh, particularly in the Baltic states and uh, gradually during the 70s, if not earlier, in other republics uh, who remembered periods of uh, independence after the collapse of the, you know, the Russian Empire in 1917. Uh, those people, of course, thought differently. They used the language of uh, decolonization and uh, began to conceive of their uh, republics uh, as uh, colonies. Uh, but uh, uh, if we look at how uh, the empire functioned, again, I, we can call it empire, but um, it was uh, uh, based on uh, radically different principles. Um, those principles were diverted, particularly under Stalin uh, and later, but those principles were paradoxically, I'm trying to explain it to my students and they're perplexed. Uh, you know, it was an idea to create an anti-empire, right, by the Bolsheviks. And Lenin said, listen, there's Ukraine, let's recognize it. Uh, Vladimir Putin now takes issue with this, as we know. Uh, he accuses Lenin of creating Ukraine. Of course, it's ridiculous. But Lenin at least recognized it against many Russian nationalists who did not want, right? Um It was recognized that uh, Russian nationalism was the primary danger for the Soviet Union because it is imperialist. Therefore, we must promote uh, non-Russian nationalities. I'm not going into this literature. There's a really interesting literature about it. Yes, those principles, again, were corroded. Uh, they were warped later on, but they never fully went away. So, and that's interesting that when Gorbachev in at the end of 1988, with his group of reformers, began to think how I should change the constitution of the Soviet Union. He was bounded by the Leninist principles. And all the more, because he was a dedicated Leninist himself in some ways, strange ways, he thought, well, you know, we must go back to Lenin. We must, you know, base all our policies towards um, non-Russian nationalities, um, uh, minorities, and so on and so forth on uh, Leninist principles. And the way he understood it was to give them more autonomy. Um, but while he thought for some reason that it would be possible to keep them all under one tent, of course, and the moment he began to discuss those constitutional changes, Nagorno-Karabakh exploded, of course, and then and then, of course, Georgia began to say, wait a minute, are you going to recognize uh, Abkhazia as uh, in as uh, as a more autonomy more autonomous 
uh, uh, even threatening the territorial integrity of the Georgian Soviet Socialist Republic, right? So we're against it. So that that opened the Pandora box, really, you know, everything began to happen. You know, Estonia uh, declared that uh, they wanted to uh, to go back to the old Estonia and uh, first, they, what they said in Estonia is interesting. First, yes, yes, we agree. Leninist principles of complete and full sovereignty for Estonia. So let's do it. And we have a full sovereign right to, to become independent. So later, Estonians, I talked to them recently. They interviewed me. Uh, they wanted to, to me to uh, admit that they were the first to kill the Soviet Union. I said, there are many aspirants to this role. There's a whole line behind you. You know, they all wanted to claim they killed the Soviet Union. So don't be in a hurry. I think that's actually one of the, I guess, funny in the sense that everyone, like, you know, Georgian nationalists also believe that they were, they have gotten freedom themselves which i find you know also you know funny because no one would have gotten anything freedom if it wasn't like from the center if moscow did not stop one day you know um so this mythology of independence that there was one actually we have two of those mythologies twice um so within within 100 years <laughs> we have two mythologies of us gaining independence on our own um so what is it like you you discussed? I think this is actually really important. The, the mainstream narrative is that there was internal contradiction that would have that destroyed the Soviet Union, right? This like thing where about like house, you know, planned economy never would work, right? This is their the narrative. Um, how the corruption was too much, and so on. Um, and so you write this book, even though all your friends are telling you why waste your time. Um, that actually didn't have to stop. So you could have could have gone on. And this also thought occurred to me years ago when I see so many horrible places still existing after after, you know, for for a very long time that have tons of internal contradictions, but they don't end, right? So like there must be some kind of flawed logic of saying like this is internal contradiction within capitalism, but capitalism has still not ended, right? So um, why did you decide to take this endeavor? Like, what is your sort of motive um, to try to find out, sort of investigate the true story behind it, or at least a story behind the collapse? Um, that would be interesting for, I think, for a lot of people who listen and are also maybe thinking about uh, how to approach the Soviet Union. I found the previous explanations inadequate. Uh, and uh, since I taught the cl my class on the Soviet history, right, through Stalin, Khrushchev, Brezhnev, Gorbachev, and all of a sudden the Soviet Union ceased to exist, I had to explain to my students what it was about. And uh, the uh, dominant literature basically says the, the country fell under the uh, weight of so many contradictions, so many pre-existing conditions, primarily uh, a non-market economy, unworkable, the weight of the military-industrial complex, uh, you know, multi multinational uh, state. We know all empires fall. Uh, uh, plus, you know, Chernobyl. Uh, you know, um, uh, Reagan. Uh, what else was there? Oh, the Soviet, you know, the Soviets sold oil and depended on oil and prices, uh, you know, went down in 86. So you can kind of combine all this and they think, you know, there's nothing to write about. 
And yet we see uh, amazing resilience in all kinds of cases of empires that, you know, by all accounts have to go uh, and they still uh, sort of continue to exist despite economic inefficiency, despite exploitation of, you know, minorities, despite, you know, all kinds of evil uh, and so on and so forth. They simply, you know, they don't care. They exist. So uh, for me, it was important to also to deal with uh, nationalist myths. I mean, there, there were the myths of uh, um, nationalists who you said uh, declared, you know, we killed the Soviet Union. The first came the Poles. They we did it. Then the Baltic Bolts. We did it. Uh, you know, Georgians maybe as well, and and so on and so forth. Um, and finally, of course, Yeltsin with his uh, guys, it's all forgotten now, but uh, when they won, they said, we destroyed the empire, we slayed the dragon of the worst totalitarian empire in, in, in the history of mankind. They proudly declared it. They went to Washington of Yeltsin, Burbulis, his right-hand man, uh, Kozarev, his foreign minister and others, and basically said, we did it. Here, here, here's Russia for you on the silver plate. Accept us to NATO. Accept us into the West. Give us some money. We'll be good, nice, you know, white, fluffy, and peaceful. Okay. That was an amazing moment. And, uh, you know, since, you know, we knew that uh, things developed in a very different way, I wanted to explore how really things happened. What did they really talk about at the time? How did this amazing discourse, for instance, of Yeltsin, you know, we destroyed the totalitarian empire and here we are. Please accept us to NATO. How did it, this develop? At what time? Uh, because it didn't exist even in 1990. It wasn't simply there. So uh, I decided to write the book not about uh, faulty structures, like, you know, sort of like um, a book of a poorly constructed house. Let's call it an architectural architecture of the Soviet Union. It was a pretty badly constructed house. Nobody would deny. I decided to write a book about the process. So when people criticize me, oh, it's nothing you know, profound. It's blow by blow history. Exactly. Exactly. This is what I wanted to do. Blow by blow. Because people's mind changed radically and amazingly during the period of months, sometimes weeks, days. Um, so those things that uh, uh, had been viewed uh, as uh, norms of life suddenly became totally abnormal in the minds of many people as I as I write in you know the earlier chapters. Uh, and including everything, uh, for instance, the uh, Democrats in Russia began to say, we are all victims of the military complex. These generals, these you know, uh, privileged labs who produce all these nuclear weapons, chemical, biological weapons, all these countless tanks and artillery, they ruined the country. Well, sure enough, of course, it sounds very, very illogical. You go to this military industrial complex documents, uh, and uh, suddenly you, you realize until the spring of 1990, they were kept completely in secrecy, not allowed to meet any foreigners. All of a sudden, in April, May 1990, Gorbachev gave him a green sight. Go, find foreign investors, 
basically, we, we don't have money for you. Survive on your own as, as, as much as you as uh, as you want. A crazy story, crazy story. Of course, they couldn't. They, they had to learn their ways. They they were robbed. Uh, they, you know, all kinds of uh, strange characters, American and Swiss and others appeared, tried to rob them and, you know, take them for the right. So you find even the military industrial complex, when you look inside and use sources, the, it, it's not the same a simple, simplistic, iconic story that, for instance, Democrats tried to sell at the time to the public and the public accept the story at the time. It's much more complex and interesting, at least for me. Yeah, I know some people that that they regret when their sort of truth is being destroyed by historical evidence. They hate it. Uh, but I, uh, I enjoy it myself. I really, really enjoy it. I'm an open-minded guy. I try to go with the flow and accept the evidence, even most contradictory evidence that comes my way. Thank you very much. Um, uh, can you uh, explain, uh, or uh, I'm interested exactly in your opinion, uh, was there a real necessity to reform Soviet Union? Uh, of the, your point of view, and this is one question, because uh, at the end of the Soviet Union, everybody was talking about the hard economic situation and uh, low growth and uh, this dependence from oil income and so on, and high debt. But if we uh, see the figure, if we look at the figure, on statistics, we recognize that not everything was so in so bad condition because there was a still growth because the economy was already quite big to grow very fast. And it is normal that big economies does not grow very fast. The second, there was a, something like, you know, everybody's talking about the um, deficit in uh, grain, deficit and meat and so on. If we see the figure from 1919, uh, we see that meat production was increasing, grain production was increasing, and there was no real, uh, ne not necessity, but there, there was not real condition for collapse of such quite strong empire. And what do you mean? What was there real necessity to reform it? Because we we remember the attempt of reforms, for example, in time of Kosygin after Khrushchev or during Khrushchev's time. We we can also remember about, for example, very interesting idea what I support generally, Ogas. You know this um, scientific information network what would should enable for better planning and so on. But was there really the necessity to, to reform it? And what was the real reason for mm. this necessity? Well, of course, there was a strong reason to reform. And, uh, you know, for those who didn't live in the Soviet Union, it's worth uh, reminding that it was a highly centralized economy based on... Uh, non-market principles uh, based on decisions taken by you know the, the relatively few experts and planners um, and um, you know everyone changes of course it's impossible to stay the same for more than a few years so but uh, let's say in um, in other countries let's talk about democratic market capitalist countries for for uh, briefly they change because consumers demand change and uh you know market adapts 
uh, you know, some problems emerge and let's say Congress uh, passes new laws and legislation. Uh, the same was in the Soviet Union. Unfortunately, the system was such that everything depended on the will of one man. And everyone understood it uh, since Stalin times uh, that uh, the time for free debates inside the party was over. They ex they were possible before uh, before Stalin took the reins in the twenties, and Gorbachev was fascinated to read all those discussions among Bolsheviks. Uh, he um, you know embellished uh, you know the party democracy too much, but uh, those debates existed. Um, and of course, the debates about economic reforms in the sixties were allowed uh, by Khrushchev because you know economists uh, convinced him that things uh, things need to. Change and he knew it himself. The, the the moment he seized power after Stalin's death, he began to all kinds of attempts to change the Soviet economy. You know, you know, Khozy, you know, uh, back and forth, dividing the party into agricultural and and so on and so forth. Why was that? Because economists kept telling him, um, you know. Uh, there's a lot of problems. Uh, uh, we cannot report it publicly, but lots of problems with efficiency, effectiveness, and in the economy. So let me um, give you one interesting thing that is not in the book. Actually, I received it from a friend of mine, a copy of a, mm, uh, a special report uh, to Brezhnev uh, from uh, Yuri Andropov, who was just appointed uh, as the head of the KGB. I will tell later tell you the date, so because it's so 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 important and interesting, and it's a long thing, basically telling. Listen, we we achieved a lot, blah blah blah, but we know we have huge problems. We have we are lagging behind America and and Western Europe in terms of electronics and general scientific technical ways. We cannot resolve the problems of agriculture. We cannot resolve you know this and that. Um, so uh, we have to create special commissions now and take decisions that will affect our future 20, 25 years later, because otherwise, we'll, if we don't do it, we'll pay dearly for that. That's Andropov for you, right? Because I begin with Andropov. Um, the document uh, had only few remarks by Brezhnev, presumably. It was found in a desk of Brezhnev's office table uh, in the Brezhnev's office after Brezhnev's death. So Brezhnev read it and did nothing, nothing on this, right? He preferred to do detente with the West. He preferred to sell oil and so on and so forth. Um, so the date is interesting. The date was July 6, 1968. A few weeks later, the Soviet Union invaded Czechoslovakia. Basta with reforms, no more reforms. So everyone was quietly, you know, put out, you know, in a drawer and forgotten. That means for 15 or so years, there were no uh, structural changes in Soviet economy, were, you know, that were thought through, um, linked to the, some kind of strategy. And that was a, a, a an idea that as soon as Brezhnev died, as soon as Andropov became the leader of the country, the first two men he met with 
And they, it's all in his journal, it's his diary of his meetings. There's nothing, unfortunately, on the content, but just the names. I met such and such. Uh, there are two people, Dolgi and Rishkov. On what? Economic reforms. He met with them more with anyone else during the few months that he was still healthy and he could function. Later, he got sick and died. So uh, Rishkov became, as we know, the head of Gorbachev's Council of Ministers and resigned uh, only because of heart attack at the end of uh, uh, 1990. Right. So this is very significant, I think, because uh, immediately as soon as Andropov took power, he returned to that document that he wrote back in 1968. But he lacked his personal time. He was sick. He was doomed. He died and passed away. This is why when my critics tell me Andropov was not a reformer, he was a KGB thug, he tortured people, he put people in psychiatric hospitals, dissidents, Sakharov, blah, blah, blah. Gamsahurdi is you know, Gamsahurdi and so on. I said, true, true. And who told you that a, a you know, a KGB, uh, you know, authoritarian guy cannot be a reformer? I've just read a book about Cuba. Fulgencio Batista, who was overthrown by Castro, he did reforms because, you know, it was necessary. People demanded it. He did reforms. At the same time, he was a corrupt bastard, Batista. He, you know, and this is why he was uh, overthrown by his people later on. Did the people demand reforms? Because the, there was a, some uh, way of identification of people's will or something like that or channels through which the people could channel their demand because you mentioned just two minutes ago that the people demanded the reforms yes not in cuba in people in cuba demanded reforms people in the soviet union were taught not to demand anything uh, of course particularly towards the end of brezhnev's rule um uh, it was, however, I repeat, it was a society that was based on dynamic ideology, on the idea of uh, changing society, reforming society. So it was absolutely clear by the end of the 70s that no one believes in socialism. Well, maybe some people in, you know, I met a, a young poet in, uh, in Dagestan who said, Lenin is my hero. That was in 1988. I said, oh, my goodness, finally, I met someone for, for whom Lenin is a hero. No one in Moscow thought that Lenin was a hero at that time. Uh, so people lost trust. People lost dynamism. People, nobody asked them. There was and, uh, the last uh, particip particip participation in anything approaching like discussion was uh, in the 60s, before 68, when people were deliberately urged and asked by main newspapers, you know, send us your proposals, participate in this discussion as sort of like not a referendum, but a way of participatory uh, thing. So uh, when Andropov returned, he didn't ask anyone. They didn't ask people. He didn't even ask elites. He just appointed a, a secret committee headed by Rishkov. Uh, and began to plan reforms. And Gorbachev initially did the same, did the same until uh, 1989, you may say, 
uh no wait a minute let me take it back uh, he in 88 was probably a better date because there was this uh, party conference in i think july 1988 when gorbachev addressed the party elites and sort of uh, asked them what kind of changes do you want but he himself mistrusted those elites he did not think that they would represent the true interests of the people. So he operated, he continued to operate within very narrow circle of reformers, uh, meeting uh, in secrecy, basically. Uh, no one was brought in, uh, no media coverage was there, no glassness was there. So uh, when I asked uh, Shevardnadze in 1999 about it, he kind of said very interesting thing. He said Gorbachev used Stalin's power to dismantle Stalinist state. Uh, where, you know, the emphasis is on he used Stalin's power. I would add even Stalin's methods because, you know, everything was closed, you know, not discussed. Um, so that was the first round of reforms of 87, 88, but then things changed dramatically because of course in 89, Gorbachev changed the whole constitutional setup, uh, changed the political system of the Soviet Union and everything began to be discussed by people's deputies openly in front of TV cameras uh, for the whole country. So that was you know, amazing and an immediate change of political regime. One of the themes of your book uh, that I really enjoyed was the dynamic between the Soviet elites and the West, and in particular, the U.S., um, especially because, you know, uh, I think that very often the role of the United States and the U.S.-Soviet relationship towards the end of the USSR is totally mired in, um, you know, misunderstandings, uh, mythologies, um, and in particular, um, if we think about the connection to Georgia, um, you know, there's a statue of Ronald Reagan in the center of Tbilisi, which is claimed oh, as being the, didn't see it. Okay. Oh, yeah, in Enrique Park. And you have this, um, you know, you have this uh, narrative that, you know, Ronald Reagan um, was responsible for the dismantlement of the Soviet Union, and therefore the United States saved Georgia, and this is the um, basis of their, you know, common uh, anti-Soviet uh, orientation. What I wanted to, to to bring up was that in your book, you know, you go into the the deep nuance of this dynamic with Bush, for example, Bush uh, one, uh, George H. Walker Bush, um, and how uh, the Soviet elites um, at the end. Are navigating what seemed to be a sort of a contradictory position from the Americans. On one hand, um, needing or desiring to sort of save the USSR because they're nervous about what could happen if it collapses, but at the same time trying to push and demand for concessions or political concessions um, that seem to be uh, striking at almost the core of the state's legitimacy or the essence of, of the state's legitimacy, legitimacy towards the end. And so I'm wondering if you could just, you know, help our, our audience understand, you know, how would you describe the relationship of the USSR and the and the United States at the end of the Soviet Union? And what role did the United States play or not play in its um, eventual dismemberment? Well, it's a huge question. I know I'm afraid I, I cannot answer, you know, this uh, in, in five, 10 or, or, or half an hour or one hour um, with nuance. Uh, but what surprised me most, what surprised me most 
Um, although at the time I was uh, at the U.S. and Canada Institute in Moscow and met many Americans, even at the time as a young man. So um, at the time, it was simply looked natural to me that we must become partners with the United States. I, as a young man, I didn't ask myself, what does it mean to be partners with Americans? What does it entail? Um, I simply believed it. And by the way, I was surprised to find even in Brezhnev's minutes in the late 60s, when the detente was starting, Brezhnev scribbled down. He had, had terrible, uh, very, very, uh, very strange way of writing in, in Russian with many mistakes. Uh, but he wrote, we, you know, it would be nice to, to, to have Americans as our partners, <laughs> even Brezhnev. Uh, so, uh, but what I found, of course, is the, the speed with which the Soviet Union began to weaken and later um, uh, uh, split into different parts uh, surprised Americans a lot. They were not ready. Only ideologues like Reagan uh, uh, were sort of, okay, you know, freedom wins, that's great. Uh, but uh, all in the CIA, uh, in State Department, all professionals who learned about Russia, the Soviet Union, all their lives, uh, they it took them by by surprise. And moreover, they found Gorbachev's behavior uh, very strange. Uh, my typical sort of example is Bush's friend, National Security Advisor Brent Scowcroft, who uh, was a military. He took classes at West Point. He studied Russian history. He learned one thing about Russia, uh, the pre-Soviet Russia even, uh, that it is a, an autocratic empire that basically is uh, is huge, uh, has to protect its borders, must have a, a huge army, and uh, is sort of by definition uh, mean, it has to be autocratic, militarized, and that's it. That's a normal condition for Russia. Okay. And so all of a sudden he sees Gorbachev trying to dismantle it very rapidly, very uh, idealistically. And he's, oh my God, you know, what, what should we do? It's almost like, you know, slow, slow, Mikhail. He, he wants him to slow down. But the things, and then he, he you know, the Bush and Scowcroft and others, uh, Gates, the CIA, uh, they realize, you know, the train is not slowing down. The train gets accelerated all the time. So what should we do? And what's clear that they never came up with any strategy. Um, they, I tried. I found some some sort of some some interesting um, ideas when they they were guided by the Cold War mentality through and through until the very end of the Soviet Union. Uh, they were, you may say, they were creatures of the Cold War. All of them, all their career went uh, you know during the Cold War. So I'm, I wasn't surprised when I found uh, uh, Bush's uh, friend, uh, tennis partner. Um, Secretary of Treasury uh, Nicholas Brady saying, you know, uh, let them move to market. Uh, you know, they won't be able to afford the big military industrial complex and the big army. They will uh, become a third rate power. And this is what we here want. So this is what this was a typical Cold War kind of strategy that America pursued towards the Soviet Union since, I don't know, 1948. 
uh, and on and on and on. So there's nothing surprising here. What was surprising when, you know, Gor uh, uh, Bush, uh, when he realized that Mikhail was kind of a, a rope walker uh, with so many dangers, the Bolts wanted to secede, the Georgia secedes, you know, Armenia, Azerbaijan, everything. Um, and then he's like a rope walker. And, and suddenly Bush decides we should hold him. Let him walk for a while, you know, longer because, you know, hey, you know, he gave us so much. He helped us to reunify Germany and NATO. He let Eastern Europe go and Berlin Wall down. You know, he tr he's trying to democratize and liberalize this hugely different country, again, almost against the grain of the entire history of this country. Let, let, let us do anything to help him st stabilize and walk on this robe. <laughs> so that was uh, until the, uh, uh, the very um, coup. Uh, the August of 1991, and many people later criticized Bush for this uh, famous uh, Chicken Kiev speech by William Sapphire comes to mind. Uh, but I think Bush and Scowcroft were absolutely right, absolutely right uh, in doing what they did. Um, and uh, when they realized all power passed to Yeltsin and, and the Russian Federation, even then they tried to kind of balance between Yeltsin and Gorbachev. And um, uh, interestingly enough, people today, uh, some people say in Twitter, uh, you know, why Russia became a successor to the Soviet Union? Why Russia has this permanent seat in the United Nations? Very simple, because the United States and UK and other permanent members of the UN pushed Russia to take this uh, seat. So there's a one remarkable episode after the coup at the end of August 1991, when uh, Shevardnadze, who resigned from the post of foreign ministry, sits in Moscow. And there's a whole delegation from the foreign ministry coming to him. And the Lavrov is one of them. <laughs> Lavrov is one of them. And Lavrov says, listen, uh, you know, Eduard Amrosich, please come back. You need to become the minister. You're respected by the whole world because if you don't return, they will take our permanent seat in the United Nations from us <laughs> and we'll cease to be a great power. And of course, you know, the surprise was they never even tried. On the contrary, they wanted Russia to become, you know, successor to the Soviet Union, take responsibility for all Soviet debts, for all nuclear weapons, and all the responsibilities and commitments and treaties uh, and obligations that the Soviet Union concluded, many thousands of them during the existence of the Soviet Union. So, interesting. What's the point? Like, what does it mean to be a reformer in the Soviet Union if you don't believe in socialism? Like, I'm trying to wrap my head around this, and it's so confusing to me. Like, why would you even care to reform if you don't believe in this project, right? Like, what is, what's driving it then? Like, what is the drive for Andropov, you know, even Brezhnev, well, he didn't try to reform, but still, what is the, the Gorbachev? Like, how can you be a Leninist and they do Pizza Hut commercials? Like, that doesn't make any sense to me, right? That makes zero sense. Don't, like, don't, uh, don't telescope it, you know. Gorbachev selling pizza is after Gorbachev uh, was in power and did reforms. There are two, you know, two, two phases of, in Gorbachev's life. We shouldn't like lump them together at all. 
uh, I think that in a, a returning back to the question about why reforms, that's a key question. Uh, I think they, uh, both Andropov and Gorbachev, uh, started reforms because they believed in socialism. Because they believed in socialism. And they were convinced, uh, wrongly or whatever, uh, that uh, the system had put, had potential. And this potential was denied to it by years of stagnation, mismanagement, uh, you know, uh, Stalinism, whatever. You know, there are many, many, many culprits of why socialism did not flower, okay? And, but the most important thing for us is because they were the believers and not cynical careerists and, uh, and, and bureaucrats, this is why they launched reforms. This is why. Uh, Brezhnev, I guess, he didn't care much about ideology. He came to power uh, in certain circumstances. He, uh, when Andropov kind of tried to push him, listen, you know, socialism, we need to need to be on the forefront of socialist technical revolution. You know, we are in competition with capitalism. And for Brezhnev, it was not so important. He just uh, walked into power. He understood power as something as as daily chore he had to pick the phone and talk to all the people uh, sort of like a normal democracy a, a head of the political machine was due every morning would call all pe people who depended on him and say hello good 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 evening good how's your family everything is great everything is fine how i can help you so this is sort of like brezhnev almost like a normal politician uh, but uh, Andropov and Gorbachev, they didn't do it. They didn't do it. Uh, you know, Andropov jailed uh, communists and thieves and crooks and corrupt officials. And Gorbachev preferred to huddle with small group of people and think how to save the socialist project. And this is how it went. How would you comment these thesis, for example, that uh, for the Soviet Union generally, after Stalin or during Stalin was oriented uh, on providing a basic need for all. And this was the main goal of the economic and societal system. And after Husserl or after the end of Cold War, not, not Cold War, but the Second World War, when the, uh, the people came back from war to their homes and somehow they demanded some consumer goods and after that there emerged some necessity to be oriented not on basic needs like it was pre previous time in the Stalin's time or uh, short after Stalin but we more oriented on consumer goods like you know better tv better clothing better I don't know why and that's why I think that um, this emergence of uh, reforms or the necessity of reforms, how it emerged, it is quite strongly attached to the uh, understanding of the goal of Soviet Union as, as an economy which is oriented on better consumer goods, because it changed somehow from uh, basic needs to consumer goods, like, I don't know, jeans, cola, or better lemonade or something like that. Well, I, I would say yes, absolutely, except I, I don't think the war changed much in this. Uh, historian, including, historians, including myself, they say, yes, millions of people uh, occupied Austria, Germany, um, Czechoslovakia, 
and they saw much higher living standards. But, you know, uh, people remembered the NAP, people remembered the 20s and much higher living standards then, but food was plenty. Everyone could, you know, could buy whatever food they wanted. Uh, it was time of plenty in the 20s, even under the Soviets. So, uh, yes, I think uh, it, it true, uh, later on, you had what you may call a consumerist revolution. It, it was uneven. It started with, in the United States, of course. Then it spread to uh, Western Europe. In Italy, it's, uh, it started in the 60s. The same in the UK, you know, when the Queen died, I watched the lots of interesting footage on television when they buried the Queen. Uh, and, uh, you know, I realized, hey, you know, the, the British lived quite poorly in the 50s. And uh, to buy a refrigerator, to buy a washing machine uh, was a luxury for many. So only the 60s changed it. So, you know, the Soviet Union was behind, but not drastically behind, right? Because at the end of the 60s, I remember, you know, I, not Georgia. Georgia was very, very privileged and special, uh, but in sort of poor Russian regions, uh, peasants, uh, collectivized peasants began to buy TV sets, refrigerators, uh, and other durables. And that was the end of the 60s, early 70s. So yes, 10 years after the, the you know, the UK, and, you know, but not, not like catastrophic, uh, delay. Um, what I think, uh, what I think changed this equation dramatically was that people lost their faith that they built a different kind of society. When they lost this faith, they simply began to say, you know, what's all this crap about socialism? Why is that? Uh, you know, we just need uh, material goods. And I think Georgia was leading in this way. You know, I remember I was in Georgia in 1888 and I was uh, struck by abundance. You know, and even earlier, of course, the 70s, I was in Abkhazia. And oh, my goodness, these people live so well in Abkhazia, an incredible wealth. And they made it on tourism, of course. They made it on selling tangerines and stuff and fruits and stuff. Uh, but, you know, I thought, you know, okay, they're privileged people. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, and everything was about material. You know, all these slogans there in the streets, communism, blah, blah, blah. Nobody believed the thing. So, and when this uh, happened, of course, uh, and it happened to our Eastern European countries, of course, much more radically, much more early. It happened even in Cuba under Castro, let's say towards the 70s, at some point in the 70s, the Cubans grew tired of constant mobilization and constant campaigns to build socialism. That was a problem. Then you had to face it. And to face it uh, was the only way, you know, you import these things, but you need currency. Um, you produce these things uh, yourself on the home ground, uh, but you know why they couldn't do it is a mystery. Why it was so difficult to let Georgian uh, black, uh, you know, gray economy to produce enough genes or people in Odessa, let's say, go ahead, make these genes, put the label, you know, whatever label you want on it, sell it. Uh, that was stupidity, but the paradox again, of socialist reformism is that uh, Gorbachev uh, launched this uh, reforms as a socialist believer, as a, as a believer in Lenin. Not, not like Dan Xiaoping, who in China 
basically said, you know, go ahead, just sell. You know, and we'll uh, we, we keep communist elites in power, and we'll you know we'll become rich, and keep keep the power under the communist party. You know, from Deng Xiaoping to Xi Jinping, you know, they chose this way, capitalism. Uh, you know, but they call it socialism with Chinese characteristics. Gorbachev genuinely wanted to save uh, to rescue the socialist project, but as a result, his reforms were non-capitalist and non-market. To the last moment, Gorbachev, uh, when they proposed to him pretty nice uh, schemes in 1990, um, you know, let's move to market quickly. And by the way, had he moved even in spring 1990 to the market, you know, I have no way to prove it, of course. I, it's, uh, I don't know. But had he done it, imagine all these protesters in the streets of Tbilisi and Kutaisi and I don't know where, in Baku, you know, they would have just went in the direction of selling things, producing things, making money, doing this. Enormous energy of protest would have transformed into market energy. Uh, so instead, Gorbachev kept saying, no, 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 I don't need, we don't need capitalism. We don't need, you know, people will suffer, will be unemployment, there will be inequality, we don't need this. So it was Gorbachev's stubbornness to refuse this uh, kind of road. I think that contributed remarkably to the demise of the Soviet Union. When I read the discussion about the collapse of Soviet Union in general from different point of view and from different um, uh, experts, for example, everybody is talking about when they uh, compare the collapse of uh, Soviet Union and reforms which started during, I don't know, Andropov and carried out from Mikhail Gorbachev. And with Deng Xiaoping. So Deng Xiaoping made one thing. He opened the economy, but uh, maintained the political system. But the Gorbachev did it in vice versa. They opened the um, uh, political system, but um, uh, he was not brave enough to open the economy in the extent like maybe it would be necessary. I don't know, because it is a question of, question of uh, taste. And um, do you know about what I remember in this discussion? Because after the collapse of Soviet Union in each post-Soviet countries, we had we started with the economic reforms, with the shock therapy and so on, which were very radical. And we thought that not only we, but generally the intellectuals and the scientists, IMF, World Bank, and so on, everybody thought that economic reforms will bring democracy with it. Yeah. Because it was something like there was, they thought that there, there are some similarities, like to, the, to have the market, it means that you will have the freedom. But it is, sorry, but it's, it's wrong. You know, it's emergency. It was it was biggest mistake, and that's why in this sense, what do you mean? Which reform should be carried out from Gorbachev at the first stage? I would say, of course, for Gorbachev, it would have been more logical to keep the power, political power, and uh, instead of uh, experimenting with multi-party system with all these unwieldy. Uh, parliaments where so many people 
you know, those of you who remember, they come to a microphone, they spoke each for 30 minutes and the next and the next people just talked and talked and talked and economy went down and down and down. So it was, would have been logical to start with a, in a controlled uh, market uh, reforms, all the more so that you had one economy, it, we call it Soviet economy, but it was in reality one economy. Uh, it, there were no borders between, I'm sorry, between Georgia or the Russian Federation, Georgia or Armenia. It was one economy. Uh, I went to, I, I visited some factories in Georgia and asked them, what do you produce or such and such? Where do you send it? We send it to Siberia. We send it to the Urals. We send it, you know, all over the country. Uh, same for everyone. So it was would have been logical to launch the market reforms and transformation of what one giant economy without destroying so many uh, chains of supply, so many uh, existing uh, existing connections between you know uh, yes inefficient but still workable uh, workable units workable enterprises in this economy and gradually modernize it as you make money as you move. Move on. Uh, instead, Gorbachev allowed uh, you know political liberalization. With it came uh, separatism and nationalism. And of course, when you when you have thousands of people in the in 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 the marching under the slogans, you know, down with the empire. Uh, basically, those people don't care that if Georgia pulls out or if Estonia pulls out of this economy, that would be huge economic crisis. Gorbachev never could understand it. He kept telling the Bolts naively, you know, you will not survive. Well, they survived. Okay, finally, after a huge crisis, but they survived. And, and of course, Georgia survived after, with enormous uh, losses and poverty and misery and so on and so forth. But it would have been from economic viewpoint and actually from the viewpoint of keeping power if Gorbachev really had been more serious about it, it would have been more logical to, to allow market reforms and regulate it, having uh, the party there and telling the party officials, you are stakeholders, become stakeholders of this process, you know, follow me into this process. This is exactly what Dan Xiaoping did in China. He had the army behind him. He told the, the, those red families, you know, go and trade and participate in capitalism and get rich. But we, he said, we need to keep it under control and we need to keep everything under, you know. Now, China, of course, now is maybe in, in its decline, as they say, but only after 30, 40 years of unbelievable growth, unbelievable development that is the en envy of the world, right? Uh, so definitely Gorbachev uh, lived in another society and the most of scholars keep uh, piling up differences. They said, no, it would not work because no peasantry, it was a different country, you know, uh, Russians do not work as hard as Chinese and blah, blah, blah. Uh, but still, it would have uh, it would have worked in some way, maybe not as greatly as in China. I'm sure not as greatly, but it would have worked much better than it did ultimately in the 90s in all separate republics uh, that uh, that uh, took place of one country. That's actually what I was going to say is um, Chinese model really rests a lot on 
dispossession, like not just China, I mean, capitalism in general, you sort of have to have people fighting for survival to work such, you know, long hours. And the Soviet Union workers were so privileged that they were like, I mean, their their labor standards are unbelievable compared to now. Um, their privileges, their time off. Um, I don't, it would be interesting to see how that would have worked. Gorbachev stood in the way. He, Gorbachev clearly stood in the way. Yes, I would say he was timid. He was, as said at some point, it's 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 easy for the Poles to do shock therapy and survive. It's uh, it will be impossible to do it for us because people will sweep us aside. Uh, I I'm skeptical. When Gorbachev said it, uh, you know, with the KGB in control, with with the army and so on and so forth, and the logic of market, the logic of market. Look what happened in uh, Russia. I know Russian history better after 1991. Let's let's say after shock therapy, did people rebel? No. The deputies of the Supreme Soviet rebelled and they were crushed by 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 tanks by Yeltsin in October 1993. Did Ukrainians rebel when they had to introduce ultimately after, with two years of delay shock therapy or sort of like shock, um, market reforms? No, they didn't rebel. Uh, they rebelled later uh, when they began to feel it a little bit better in 2004, the first Maidan. So for me, I think Gorbachev was not really right when he said, oh, we couldn't do it because people would have been like up in the revolution like in 1917. That's rubbish. I don't accept it. I think he just lost. He blew his chance. He lost his opportunity to do it for the whole country. As simple as that. I, I agree with you. The only thing I would say is that the shock therapy only worked because they dispossessed people. Oh, yes. And he, he was uh, he was a humanist. The second reason why he didn't want to do it. He said, you know, yeah, I'm a country boy. I, I grew up after collectivization. I saw what collectivization did to, you know, Ukrainians and Russians and other poor people. You know, I don't want to subject my people to another cruel social experiment. This is what he kept saying. And even when he went to London uh, in, on the eve of the coup in July 1991, and Yavlinsky, young reformer, Yavlinsky kept telling him, this is the plan. Or, you know, take this plan with you. Ask the Westerners for, I don't know, $100 billion to back up your plan of market terror. You know, Gorbachev said, you know... I'm afraid speculators will buy all property and make people poor. And, you know, he kept saying it. And as a result, it happened, but without him in a much worse uh, situation under terrible conditions. I remember about um, uh, Andropov quote in your book. Uh, he was saying that uh, before the reform, you have to give the people some tangible, and after that will the, you can provide the reform or carry out the reform. Maybe Gorbachev did not enough to give the people something tangible before he started this reform. It's just a small remark from me. But my question is about Yavlinsky, for example. I remember that there was a 500-day plan or high 500-day plan uh, through which 
Uh, frankly speaking, I got some uh, in, um, impressions that the 500-day plan was uh, something uh, like to get the independent for Russian Federation. This plan was for getting Russia in uh, Russian Federation independence or create something quite loose union from different uh, independent countries. Like it was not confederation according to this plan. It was like, you know, I would say, even not European Union, it was like um, it was like uh, economic union or something like that. The same was also uh, how is it, it is called um, uh, Novogorsk process uh, when uh, uh, the yes constitutional changes uh, changes uh, have been discussed. And the Eltsin's position was the same. He, he was fighting for more independence of Russian Federation, even for abolishing the Soviet Union. Do you mean that, uh, how do you estimate the Yeltsin's, the Yavlinsky's, or mostly Yeltsin's, because uh, he was the most strong figure in this time, in this group. How do you mean, how, how do you estimate the Yeltsin's role in the destroying of Soviet Union generally? How, what is his stake? in this process. And the second question, because Yeltsin and this group uh, uh, somehow fighted for Russian independence, and uh, if we see or read this, um, you know, this transcript of uh, this Novogor process, where the constitutional changes has been discussed, we see that somehow he tried to distance himself from different republics, in other republics, because, um, for example, Kravchuk is uh, more or less confused which side he should take, and um, some uh, Asian republics are also some kind uh, in confusion which side they should take, or, or Gorbachev or Elsin. But Elsin's clear position was that he uh, demanded more power for Russian Federation, even uh, the, the even abolished generally Soviet Union as such, or as it existed before. And, you know, because Yeltsin's position was this, and the Russian Federation gets the independence after the 1991, uh, after um, uh, the SNG emerged. Why Russian Federation, for example, interfered in Georgia? Because he tried to in Georgia, in Nagorno-Karabakh, okay, Nagorno-Karabakh was a little bit uh, earlier, but for example, Georgia. Georgia was already independent country, already recognized independent country from Russian Federation. Why this guy, Yeltsin, which fighted for his own independence and distance for distancing from different republics interfered, for example, in Georgia. What was his interest in this sense? Because it's somehow I got the impression that uh, the Yeltsin was not interesting to keep this imperia together. Well, you ask so many interesting questions, and uh, maybe I, I will write another book, a sequel book about uh, what happened after December. 1991 because essentially the last question why did russia why did the same man as struggled for russia's independence uh began to intervene in uh, the post-soviet space as, as it was called um you know all i can say uh with, with the sources and evidence that i uh, i saw 
that uh, Yeltsin hesitated to admit his uh, his role in destruction of the Soviet Union. He always denied it. He, you know, essentially said uh, that uh, this the end of the Soviet Union was a result of Gorbachev's failures, the failure of Gorbachev's reforms. Not his. It was not his intention to uh, undo. Uh, which is a sort of interesting because I mentioned earlier that uh, at some point he sent Bourbalis to uh, to Paris, Brussels, and and then Kozarev to Washington with the message we destroyed the the totalitarian empire. So there was a contradiction, and I think uh, why uh, why Yeltsin was so hesitant to to accept his. Uh, a role, a huge role, I should admit, in, in the destruction of the Soviet Union was a simple way because it was intuitive uh, politician. He knew that uh, um, some Russians would applaud him, but more Russians would probably not applaud him for, for saying it. Uh, it wouldn't have been popular. So because he was a politician, he decided not to not to highlight but the way it worked is really, really fascinating. And I find uh, at first Yavlinsky uh, came to um, Yeltsin with his plan that actually was stolen for him by another guy uh, from the Russian parliament, Russian Supreme Soviet. And uh, uh, this plan was called 400 Days. And that other guy uh, said, we should just... Uh, do it as a Russian uh, market reform and uh, to hell with everyone else. But other republics can do whatever they want. We'll just proceed uh, 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 ourselves separately. And then Yavlinsky came to Yeltsin and patiently uh, explained to him that it's impossible. It's impossible because it's one economy. There's no such thing as Russian economy. The Soviet economy that spans through uh, through all the republics uh, the, within the boundaries of the Soviet Union. If you try to do it in the Soviet in the Russian Federation, it, it, it only it would be like trying to treat a patient, but but uh, that has only body but no arms, no legs and probably know some parts of the brain as well, because this patient would die. And Yavlinsky's message was, it's impossible to do uh, market reforms in, uh, in the, in the, within the Russian Federation that has no state of its own, no customs, uh, no system of taxation, nothing. Everything that exists is only Soviet for, for all the republics. And that was a problem with Baltic um, separatism as well, as well with Georgian separatism, uh, because in economic laws dictated or laws or whatever, realities dictated that uh, Georgia could not escape Soviet economic orbit easily. It could, but at the cost of tremendous plunge in its living standards. So I, you know, I came to Georgia in 99, you know, talk to peasants, talk to countrymen, they're all like impoverished beyond belief. Uh, nine years after the Soviet collapse. So it was economic uh, consequence of this dismemberment of one economy. And Yeltsin 
listened uh, and he seemed to agree with Yablinsky that it, uh, it's true, uh, although I don't think he understood the economic logic of it. And he agreed that let's uh, do it together with Gorbachev. And have they done it together, uh, Yeltsin and Gorbachev, had they launched this 500 days or whatever it was called? And let's call it just market uh, market reform. Uh, you know, history of the Soviet Union would have turned out very differently. Uh, I'm, I'm almost convinced. Uh, the energy of the people would have went from political separatism, from you know these things, to just a matter of uh, dividing, di redividing property, you know, establishing new economy, making money, and so on and so forth. But Gorbachev uh, did not do it uh, ultimately, and Yeltsin went his way. He he returned to this kind of point before Yavlinsky. He began to claim that all assets in within the Russian Federation do, should belong to Russia, period. So, um, which led, in a sense, uh, the parade of sovereignties and which made Ukrainians and Kravchuk to do the same. Okay, if Russian oligarchy is forming on the basis of Russian wealth, if Russian nomenclature, part of nomenclature, is trying to, to, to become rich, on the basis of what they own, 75% of all Soviet wealth, all oil, diamonds, and so on and so forth. We in Ukraine want to do the same. And this is what they did. Uh, and I think, you know, very briefly, the last question, you know, still to be investigated. I think Yeltsin never could escape uh, the political uh, inertia of uh, uh, Russia being an empire. And he thought, okay, uh, now Russia is independent, but we have to rebuild the empire somehow. Obviously not uh, by claiming these lands back, not fighting for those lands, but let's do it like other former empires do, by reestablishing our economic presence there, our economic interests, and maybe using our military just to have bases here and there, you know, if you looked around in history, this is what British did. This is what French did. This is what Belgian did. Even Americans in Cuba, again, I mentioned Cuba, in, 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 in Central America, the Philippines, this is what Americans did. Uh, economic domination, uh, military bases like Guantanamo in Cuba, and, uh, you know, all kinds of other means, uh, financial domination and uh, corrupting elites, uh, corrupting the military uh, and all those things. Uh, it was not Yeltsin's invention uh, to, to do this. It was unfortunate for Georgians, but it was kind of, I think, almost natural. You know, where do you place Shevardnadze in all of this and his role in how the events unfolded? Oh, I I should write a separate book about it. Absolutely, there's so much that uh, I couldn't include into my book, and so much that was recorded by Shevardnadze's uh, loyal uh, speechwriter, uh, Taimuras Mamaladze Stepanov, and I find uh, those notes and diaries uh, by Taimuras as one of probably one of the best sources on the Soviet collapse ne next to Chernyayev's diaries, for instance, and a couple of others, one of the best, definitely. So uh, we have the source. 
Um, and uh, Stepanov is almost always next to uh, Edward, to Chernadze, almost always. He sees everything. He His duty is to record everything about Chernadze. And what's fascinating about uh, observing Chernadze's role, Chernadze, of course, is keenly aware that he's a Georgian that uh, is in a key position of responsibility on which depends the um, the future of the Soviet Union. And by the way, he also is aware that the Soviet Union is not just the Soviet Union, it's Russia. So he is a Georgian in, in among Russians, in the center of the Russian Empire, in the position of extreme responsibility. And he even once said to his uh, two closest uh, assistants, uh, listen, uh, can you imagine what can happen to me if things go wrong? There were already two Georgians uh, in, in high places in the Soviet Union, of course, Stalin and Beria. Look, Stalin died peacefully, Beria, not so. Uh, so I don't want to be the third. <laughs> so he uh, keeps his eyes on many uh, desks, if you, uh, chess desks simultaneously, Shevardnadze. So he plays the international desk, but he always thinks what is going on in Georgia. And of course, after April 1989, he's in crisis. He's absolutely in crisis because he had to come to talk to people, to students in Belize to explain why the Russians fired at Georgian people, why, who made it possible. And for him, it's uh, he begins suddenly to see that he's sitting um, trying to sit on two chairs simultaneously because all Georgians keep looking to him as their man in Moscow who basically needs to protect them and, uh, you know, serve their interests. He's the most important Georgian in the world. And he should talk, by the way, to Reagan about them. He should talk to Bush about Georgians, not the Soviet Union, Georgians. And, you know, and that that one stool and another stool is, of course, he is, a, you know, the foreign minister of the Soviet Union. And he's falling. These stools begin to, you know to pull apart and he's following that. And so his first time that he decided to resign from his position is, is December 1989, highly emotional moment when um, uh, what triggered this resignation, it's not at all foreign policy at all. It's not the Berlin Wall. You know, he does feel that he, in Russian nationalists, Russian hardliners begin to use him as a scapegoat. Uh, they, they essentially grumble, look, Sharonadze makes all these concessions to the West. It's, you know, we used to have Gromyko and we were strong power and all of a sudden this Georgian is there and we're giving away Eastern Europe, we're giving away Germany. Uh, but that's not the, minor, the, the major factor why he decided to resign. The, the, main, the main factor was his, uh, you know, inability to combine two stools. And when uh, um, uh, General Rodionov, who used power against Georgian demonstrators in April 1989, testified to the Second Congress of People's Deputies and made some horrific uh, statements, basically, they are guilty themselves, the military is not guilty, blah, blah, blah. And then it, it, this was the moment when uh, Shevardnadze just blew off totally. I said, I'm resigning. I don't want, 
you know, to be, you know, uh, here. Uh, and, and Gorbachev told him, listen, I need you. I need you because you're the second after me whom the West knows and trusts, Americans. Uh, trusts you, Germans trust you. We need to go through so many crises together, like German reunification, like you know, uh, locking, locking, locking in the post uh, Cold War world in Europe. Common European house, Edward. I need you, and he stayed, and he stayed for one more year, and he resigned only, as we all know, very dramatically in um, uh, on December twenty, uh, on December twenty uh, first, nineteen. Um, and, and, and uh, 91 exactly on this day and uh, uh, at that time he already knows that maybe Georgia will need him soon because during Gamsahurdia days and months he knows he will never be able to return to Georgia because Gamsahurdia basically treated uh, Sharanadze very very poorly and kept threatening him if you don't do this, if you don't, uh, you know, uh, if you, you, you're a supporter of Abkhazians, you're a supporter of whoever, Ossetians, you know, Georgian people hate you and all these things. Uh, and uh, in December 91, Gamsahuri's star falls very quickly and oh, immediately people sent envoys I know one of them, by the way, personally, uh, to Edward, to Moscow. And would you like to return? Maybe. So he already knows when he resigned that he may or may not go back to Tbilisi and start a new career as, as a Georgian state. I found this as an absolutely fascinating case when someone uh, almost immediately uh, sheds his, 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 you know, takes off one cap, one hat, of a Soviet foreign minister and puts another hat off, you know, uh, the father of the young Georgian nation immediately. That's uh, it's absolutely fascinating. So the idea of constructing an alternative oil route through uh, Georgia to Turkey, you know, Shevardnadze is the one who came up with that and convinced the Americans um, to do it. So, you know, the BP pipeline or whatever other names for it. So um, what you just said that he takes off one hat, puts on the other one. And this is very confusing because there's this all this, uh, at least what I have read on this topic, it's like Shevardnadze is like, you can never trust Russia. You know, we have to protect uh, ourselves away from Russia. So it's really confusing. <laughs> to why would this narrative be around Shevardnadze, who has been, you know, the one, the top, the second person in charge of the entire Soviet Union before, you know? And why is this so much supposed distrust? Or is it against Yeltsin at that point? You know, what exactly is happening? Or maybe the people are just who are writing about this are just lying, you know? What do you think is happening there? Uh, first thing, uh, geopolitical change, enormous. It's one thing to have the Soviet Union collapsing. Uh, and another thing is the Russian Federation uh, is re becomes recognized as a successor to the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union is over, finished, doesn't exist. And uh, Russia takes its place, takes its place with other republics uh, becoming fully independent. 
recognized by international community, but operating in the post-Soviet space with practically one indivisible Soviet economy and one currency, ruble, no more currencies at that time, uh, and in the, what uh, you can say highly chaotic international environment. Uh, let you know, um, classical theorists of international relations would call Hobbesian, you know, when, you know, Hobbes said about the war of everyone against everyone, a very dangerous environment. This is one thing. And the second thing, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but politicians are chameleons. Uh, you know, they change color immediately. They, you know, this is why they're politicians. Uh, and uh, Shevardnadze uh, had uh, did not do it all overnight. Of course, he had his period when he was in retirement, and he used massively his uh, political capital. He, he set up um, uh, the um, uh, what's it called Association of Foreign Policy in Moscow with all his with two of his trusted assistants, nobody else. He traveled to America, he traveled to Germany, he traveled to other countries. Basically, he capitalized on his uh, connections made during the end of the Cold War. And, uh, of course, he met uh, Hans-Dietrich Genscher. He met his friend uh, G James Baker and other friends. He had enormous connections, valuable connections. So the point when he came to uh, Georgia, you know, basically had no power. You know, others, uh, Iosiliani and others had armed uh, power, not him, but he had international legitimacy. He controlled it. And during the first months after appearing in April, I think it was in April 1992, he came in within just a few months. One man used this enormous international legitimacy capital to have Georgia recognized. Don't forget, nobody wanted to recognize Gamsakhurdi as Georgia. No one. Uh, it was a, basically called a fascist dictatorship you know, of crazy nationalists. Nobody wanted to deal with it. Shevardnadze changed it within several months. But he realized with this immediate war in Abkhazia, with this uh, uh, you know, a problem of uh, Jaria and other problems, a uh, very poor neighborhood, very troublesome neighborhood, uh, he knew it, that you need to put something on the map of the United States of America that would be valuable for Americans. And what was valuable for Americans? Very easy. The map with pipelines. The map with pipelines, to put it very simply. So he decided to change the map of the Caucasus for Americans. Originally, he used other things. He said, oh, Georgia is such a Christian small country, but very pivotal, surrounded by Muslims, Muslims, Muslims. Central Asia would go like the way of Afghanistan. It's very dangerous. So he played this and he could see that Americans were not buying it. And George and Germans were saying, huh, well, big deal, you know, so. It's your problem. You know, you are our man, but, you know, essentially the Caucasus is something that's so far from us. But when you built a pipeline, immediately, and I could see it myself, I was in Washington at that time, I could see myself how the discourse immediately began to change about Georgia and the Caucasus in Washington. Hey, they have oil. They have, you know, the Baku oil comes, blah, 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 uh, bypassing Russia. 
very important. You know, even before Putin, Putin was still not in Moscow. The Americans already began to speak geopolitical language of oil and gas and how to bypass this dangerous, unpredictable Russian bear, Russian, you know, giant. And so, you know, it was already all there. Oh, 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 oh,